What's your name? Sean Madison. What's your primary job and how long have you been doing it? I am the producer for the San Jose Sharks on NBC Sports, and I've been doing it for 12 years. In hockey's off-seasons, how many documentaries have you produced? In hockey's off-seasons, I've produced somewhere in the, uh, I'd say the general area of about 10 documentaries. Back in the day, what did you once do for MTV and VH1? I once produced... I once produced features for a particular show, which I, uh, you know, I think you obviously know the answer. It was called the 50 Worst Songs of All Time, and it is not the highlight of my career, but what I am thankful for. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, my guest is somebody who doesn't know the meaning of the word off-season. While others rest and relax, Sean Madison makes documentaries. Not fun, easy-breezy documentaries, but emotional documentaries about sports in a larger context within society. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, good afternoon, my friend, and thanks for joining me on my podcast, Mr. Madison. It is intensely my pleasure, my friend. It is always good to see your mug, and you are one of my favorite people uh, around the seams, if you will. Well, we'll see if you agree with that an hour from now or so, because usually you're on the other end of long-form storytelling. You're asking the questions. You're compiling the stories. How does it feel to be on the other side? Um, I'm a, I'm a, it's a little nerve-wracking, I must say, but uh, you are putting me at ease, and I am looking forward to this next hour. All right, so we don't have time to get into every documentary that you have produced, but I do want to focus on a few of them. No Number one, the documentary about Glenn Burke, who by all accounts was openly gay to his teammates. The press knew it when he played Major League Baseball in the late 1970s. His teammates didn't seem to care. Public didn't know, yet his career ended prematurely because management was uncomfortable with his sexuality. I want to talk about your documentary and multi-platform initiative titled Tomboy, which I think is very instrumental in light of what's going on in the world right day, these days. It explored gender and labels in sports. And most recently, you produced a beautiful, heartfelt documentary titled Letters to 87. It was fans writing letters to former 49ers wide receiver Dwight Clark about how the catch impacted their lives. And it showed Dwight Clark's teammates rallying around him in his final days on this earth before he died due to ALS. So before I get into the details about those three in particular, I want to start with a broader question. Why? Why not just rest? I know that you go to Yosemite and Tahoe and you hang with your wife and your kids, but why not just relax in the off season? It's a tough grind. Yeah, man. I I don't. I'm not. A, I don't enjoy relaxing, um, and I I am super passionate about storytelling, and I really legitimately enjoy it. I mean, I if I 
you know, if I, I always say, if I won the lottery, I would not change the job I do. I love producing live sports, and I, as much if not more, love storytelling. And I certainly love storytelling in the context of what I l- really hope and like to think makes the world a better place and facilitates and elevates discussions. That's like that's what I wake up to do. So um, I'm fortunate enough to be in the industry that I can do it and have a platform. So rest, rest when I'm dead. I definitely agree with that. Okay, so with a lot of these, I probably get in the habit too much of focusing on someone's childhood and sort of the building blocks and how that leads to what they do now. But with you, I want to talk about the time that you moved to New York. You've graduated from high school. You've graduated from college. You are starting to work in the industry. You are, you are producing the San Francisco Giants pregame and postgame shows. You have other credits under your belt. So you're getting yourself established. It's not like you did not have a job. And you decide to move to New York. And if I remember correctly, you didn't have a full-time job that was lined up. You were kind of going there, and you were just going to figure it out. So explain to me why you did it then and your reflections on what that move meant to your career. Well, I, I can look back on it now and say it was equally the most ridiculous, ill-informed uh, decision and the best decision all wrapped up in one. Uh, I did it because I tend to make rash decisions and I will like I will defend myself and say I usually make rash decisions based uh, on at least some sort of information that I have gathered um, and I figured out that I loved the job I was doing I loved living in, in San Francisco where I had amazing opportunities to work um, but I also knew that there was a much bigger world out there and New York was calling my name uh, I really wanted to learn I really wanted to grow and I kind of pictured myself um, just like doing the same job and I was loving doing Giants and A's. I grew up a huge fan of the Giants um, in the backyard of the A's as well and I was like, I'm, I could do this for 30 years and I'm not going to grow as much as I would if I stepped outside of my comfort zone. So, yeah man, I quit my job, which was stupid um, and I moved to New York and that was stupid as well, um, but I got honestly, literally I had a plane ticket for a Sunday and I I was hustling trying to line up work, and I got called on the Friday before I flew to New York and got this job with MTV VH1, which is a 10-week project working on the show The 50 Worst Songs of All Time. And that's what I want to get into and how working on that has impacted the documentaries that you are currently doing, which you are proud of. So give us... So most people have seen these. It's a bunch of different celebrities or wannabe celebrities, and they try to be funny, and you take different parts of the videos, and you cut in their quirky comments. What else am I missing about what is involved in that, that project? Well, I, I want well, I won't, I won't be too careful here. I'm, so th- I'm always thankful, and I have a huge amount of gratitude for that particular job and the people that hired me and for you know, Viacom, MTV, whoever that conglomerate is that hired me. But that was more and a lot of what I learned in New York was how not to do things. Um, there was no soul to that show and I I personally realized I don't want to work on things that have no soul, right? It was there was no soul to it. Entertaining, sure. Um, it also was inefficient and a lot of big you know, a lot of lot of corporations, I'd say industries have, have realized their inefficiencies through technology. Media, I feel like, has been slower to adapt that at certainly the big level. And MTV was like there was like six people doing the job of what I would say um, takes like one or two. Um, there was a you know a writer and an editor and a producer and it's like whoa, whoa, whoa like okay this is I'm glad everyone's working here but it was super inefficient it took too long it wasn't necessary and so I was like yo this doesn't need to be this way I especially with technology you and I are sitting here a perfect example what would it have taken to record this even ten years ago we're sitting on a laptop in this awesome arena right now but 
it helped me realize that, look, I don't need, we don't need all this. In fact, it actually, I think, sucks the soul out of the actual product that we as viewers and fans watch at the end of it. It's just diluted, and that's not cool. So since you brought up a couple of things, let me set the tone for our uh, listening audience. We are inside the uh, SAP Center in San Jose, the home of the Sharks. We are in row 12 behind the left side of one of the goals. It is completely empty. The Sharks have a preseason game tonight. So we're just chilling up here as people work on the ice. Now, before we go any further, what ended up being the worst song ever from this top 50 countdown? Very <laughs> people, and this is the beauty of the show. I mean, people, again, like... Of all the things I've worked on, people would way rather talk about that show, and people are way more opinionated about that show. The, for, I'm going to tell you two parts of that. My, we all sat around. There were five producers on the show. We drafted. We were given the list of the songs. So the, a music publication, which I can't remember the name. It wasn't Rolling Stone. It was another music publication. Picked the 50 songs, and then we had a draft. And my number one draft pick, I was like, oh, I'm getting that, is Eddie Murphy, uh, Party of the Time. Right. And I know everybody, my girl likes to party. I mean, it is horribly atrocious and i loved every minute of it the number one song overall which i did not get and i didn't want was uh jefferson starship we built this city and people get really mad about that because like, especially in the bay area yes it's a very iconic song so my favorite part of all of those quirky comments was one of the comedians whoever says you know the only thing that would make this song worse if we put a traffic report right in the middle of the song Yes! And they did that. And I must tell you that like two weeks ago, the song came on and I was like, all right, here comes the traffic report. It was gone. They took it out? I was listening on the radio and the traffic report was gone. Wow. Like, how did I know what the bridge was like as I was approaching the bridge? That was truly remarkably horrible. And I also feel like we've wronged history by taking that out. Like, we have wronged history. Yeah. Oh. But that, that song gets people hot, especially the barrier that... That, that wasn't the number one song. And, yeah, that, that report, the traffic report, was really what did it in. <laughs> okay, so in addition, I could actually spend an hour to you talking about um, the 50 worst songs ever. But yeah, what are some of the other things that you did in New York as you were hustling to pay outrageous rent and pizza costs? Yeah, uh, well, I did have a high pizza cost. That's true. I'm a huge fan of pizza. Uh, I did live across the street from John's Pizzeria and down the block from what is my favorite slice on the planet. Just insert that in here, a little plug for Bleecker Street Pizza, the Nona Maria. It's the joint. Uh, but, yeah, so New York for me, growth-wise, and honestly, like what a lot of the do- subsequent documentaries I- I've, worked, I've done were motivated not necessarily through work, although I'll get into that, but, like, it was life. I mean, again, outside of my comfort zone. I was living in New York where riding the subway every day and understanding that there was such a bigger world out there than Walnut Creek, California, specifically where I grew up, um, and that there were real issues going on. This was during um, Gulf War. This is, like, like the world I really was. New York felt like the epicenter of the universe, and I was um, really motivated by things that were going on in the world and how they affected people, specifically in New York, where you see people from different backgrounds. So that was really the foundation. And then subsequently for work after the MTV thing, which I politely said, thank you when they offered, you know, Hey, do you want to jump on another one of these type of shows? I'm like, Hey, I really appreciate it, but I'm good. Um, I, 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 I hustled again and I was just trying to get work where I could. I got to do some work uh, with the yes network covering the Yankees. And I do like to bring up that I got randomly hired to do, Produce uh, post-game shows, uh, features for the post-game shows of the postseason where the Yankees blew. Was it a three? I was a three-zero lead to the Red Sox. Yep. I worked that series, and it was it was it was amazing. Um, 
And so, yeah, did stuff for Yes Network. I did stuff for, um, I did a little bit for ESPN documentaries. I actually worked a little bit on the Eckersley um, Sports Century piece, which was really interesting. It's for someone who, you know, like you and I grew up in that era. Um, and, and then another show that I'm not entirely proud of, but uh, it was an ESPN show. We did the National Paintball Championships, which was their attempt at trying to find another sport Sport using a, being a loose term for it was right after the poker craze, and they're like, "Ooh, what else can we? What other thing can we create and put on TV and make a bunch of money?" And I, I credit ESPN. Let's try PayPal. That didn't work that well. Were there any other non-sports projects when you were in New York? There were well, there weren't. Although I, one one did go a little ways off, and that and it, that definitely stuck with me. When I was working for a production company, um, we did a show with with College Sports Network called from ball fields to battlefields again this is like goal four time and we profiled athletes um i'm trying to think of the exact timing of it we profiled athletes that had military ties and there was you know a a kid at um i want to say it was vermont who was a basketball player that like gave up his senior season to go enlist and that was a really powerful piece and like I think also like slightly opened my eyes to doing some storytelling that actually that really elevated some conversations. What were your roles in some of that stuff? Because obviously you're not at the high level, at the top level of those. But what what kind of roles are you doing that helps prepare you for the ones that you do in the Bay Area now? Similar. I mean, it was really going out and uh, and those I was given kind of assignments, but I was going out uh, and interviewing. You know, for the most part, I was interviewing these people. Um, coming back, taking those interviews and shaping them into stories. So more of a feature producer style. Um, I think I may have produced that whole Ballfields to Battlefield show uh, with, the, with the help of, of kind of a mentor I was working with in New York. But, yeah, I mean, it, I, it was doing much of the same stuff I was now. Going out, um, sometimes shooting my own stuff, um, oftentimes editing my own stuff. But the main part was going out, facilitating, setting up those interviews and, and conducting those interviews and getting the content we needed to put stuff together. So when do you know that I've gone to New York – I've done these things, and now it's time to go home. What, what are the signs? What are the issues that say it's time to come back to the Bay Area? Well, man, I miss the Bay a lot, and I love New York, and it, and it will always holds a special place in my heart. But it was really after about – I was there for about a year and a half, and um, I kind of realized that New York and San Francisco and everywhere, like, has its – I had this grand vision of New York being this, like – this shiny place where everyone, every show and every production company was like the creme de la creme, the best of the best. And that just wasn't the case. And, and quite frankly, I ran into a lot of places um, where I was like frustrated by, I was like, Ooh, this is, this isn't great. And something great to learn from that as well. Once I kind of realized that and took some of those things and uh, I, I wanted to go back to the Bay. And I also knew I couldn't kind of, you know, live, uh, you know, it's expensive to live in New York and certainly isn't cheap to live in the Bay area. Uh, and I was going from show to show, and I didn't want to be there for, perpetually. So I made the decision that I had acquired the knowledge that I would kind of sought out, which I did. I really got a totally broader perspective on our industry, and I, and I, for me, again, which was much more important, I felt like I got a broader perspective on the world, which I'm still, like, working on that every day, trying to get a broader perspective on the world. But that one accelerated my, uh, my outlook. It's interesting you say that about New York. When I moved to Los Angeles, I remember being intimidated oh, this is the number two market in the country. This is the epicenter. This is Hollywood. Like, everyone must be, like, so incredibly talented. And there were tons of people that were so talented. And then you realize, that just like any other market, there are some people who are not talented. They just happen to grow up here, and they're doing the job because you still need a certain number of, of bodies. 
So I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, man. All right, so let's talk about the Glenn Burke documentary. Yep. Give us where are the roots. When did where did this idea come upon? Yeah. So my uh, boss at the time, who's an NBC executive and a mentor and a friend of mine, uh, Ted Griggs. Uh, Ted and I always had a very similar outlook on content and. These are not his words. I'll, my, I'll use mine, but we always like to use our powers of evil for good. I mean, we we both um, love televised sports. Um, we both love building heroes out of the athletes we cover, and we also both had this kind of always like, oh man, this is this is really are we really is this what we're here to do? Is worship you know people throwing baseballs or footballs? Um, and we both love sports. Well, so he and I always talked about stories and ways to use this vehicle, right? the fact that we do have actually really cool human interest stories within our sports world. So within the Glenn Burke one itself, um, it wasn't too long after I come back from New York and he's like, man, I got this story and he was about the same age as Glenn and he knew of Glenn growing up. He'd heard this legend of this guy that was, he was like known to be the best basketball player, basketball player, not baseball, basketball player in like Berkeley, Oakland history. Like he was just crushing people out of Bushrod park in Oakland. And then so he was, you know, he heard about him in high school and college, and then he knew the story, but it was this story was really buried. And there was all these, you know, eventually everyone knew, he'd come out as gay, and no one really knew what happened. He passed away, and he'd been cut. And so he threw the story at me and said, hey, I got, I got this, this guy you can work with who's a, a documentary filmmaker who knew him. And I that's great. So he threw it at me, and that was it. Like, we didn't have any really leads except for we had a connection in to the, the, the family a little bit. So once you decide, okay, here we go, we've got this, how much in the back of your mind are you thinking about, how do I need, this is a heavy topic, the topic of an openly homosexual player in baseball from 30 years ago and why his career was cut short, this is a heavy topic. Are there any outlines or any rules or any guidelines in terms of how do I proceed with this, with what content and what truth we uncover? There, it, there was no, oh man, it was, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. There were no guidelines, like... There was no plan, <laughs> and it was actually why it was such an interesting project because we were just like, I'm going to go forward and see where this goes. Um, treading delicately with the family, um, treading delicately with baseball. I mean, this was not a topic that had been discussed in the baseball ranks. It was, this was a, a documentary that um, Tommy Lasorda was not uh, a positive figure in, uh, Thomas Sorter, who is beloved in the baseball, you know, sphere, uh, and same I, with Billy Martin. Absolutely. Well, yeah, true. Absolutely. A little bit different with Billy because he's passed away, and people know that he's an alcoholic. Yeah. and was sometimes a very mean spirited human. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So there was some delicate there, even with his teammates. It, we waded very um, slowly into the waters, as you know, when you deal with something like this. We had some key figures. Who Dusty are those? Baker. Yeah. The minute we got Dusty, Dusty knew Glenn. Uh, well, they played together in the Dodgers. And Dusty, I think, even knew of him, even through, like, the rumors of, of because even, you know, Dusty was, like, a Northern California guy. He'd heard of Glenn. Um, the minute Dusty agreed to do it, that was, like, that opened doors for us because we could go to all sorts of guys. Davey Lopes. Yeah. Other guys like that and say, hey, Dusty's doing it. Absolutely. And they, once we had Dusty in the can, we were like, hey, Dusty talked to us about this. And he said, okay, Dusty talked to you. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you. And, and it was building, right? It was one person after another. Um, and we were starting to get more and more 
um, really like a better idea of of what had all gone down. And Dusty was very upfront. Dusty was very upfront. You know, he's just like, yeah, he got run out of the Dodgers organization because he because he was gay. Like there was no, Dusty didn't have <laughs> there was no there was no question to him. Um, and you know, we interviewed uh, like Rick Monday who was not as open about it. He was much more comfortable with the topic, and I'm not criticizing him for that at all. Um, but, you know, he was treading much, light, much more lightly about the whole thing. Um, but, yeah, Davey was great in that piece. Uh, and, and he said some stuff off the record, which helped us um, proceed on the record, if that makes any sense, right? He said some stuff he wasn't going to say on camera that helped um, as a journalist... I could say, okay, that corroborates some of these stories that, like, you know, if someone really wants to call us on this, and no one did, you know, we could, we, we've got facts off the record but that we could share with someone and say, you know, this did all happen. The, the part that stood out to me was that most of the press knew, the players knew, and the players didn't seem to care. Not only did they not care, but they loved Glenn. He was the... He was the energizer rabbit in that clubhouse when he was traded away. This was a guy who was a rookie or barely into his second year, and players are crying because he's been traded, which is when you, when you think about the macho world of, of sports and the, 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 the and how people struggle with homosexuality in sports, that was the part that was most eye-opening to me is that they didn't care back in the late 70s about him. No, they did. that's the, the perception I got from everybody. And, you know, like... I'm sure there were some who did care, and they just didn't vocalize it or it was yeah you're never going to please everybody but it, it was very clear that the majority of his teammates a, a very strong majority couldn't did not care at all they uh, you know they might have cared what he what his off the field what uh, stuff was going on if this makes any sense if they if you, if, if you would ask them if they condoned it they would have said you know we're not we're not agreeing with that lifestyle but it didn't they completely separated it if they did they loved him in the clubhouse, and most of the guys I don't think really cared what he did whatsoever. Whatever you know, he'd walk off, you know, the team plane and put on a, put on like this purple fur coat and go off in this car with these guys. And he's like, the guys are like, what is going on here? This is not the normal behavior of our teammates. But you're right, man. They loved him, and guys to this day still talk about him. It's just like this, what a guy in the clubhouse, entertaining, fun, and probably most known besides being openly gay at the time, even though the public didn't know about it, is that he invented the high five. Yes, Johnny B. Baker, yes. Dusty hits a home run, his 30th of the season. Four players on the Dodgers with 30 more home runs for the first time in baseball history, and Glenn Burke says, "Dusty, put it up here." Yep, invented the high five on and, the spot, and and again, this is Dusty. Dusty stands by that that story, and uh, that's so cool, man, right? right? Like, the high five started right there, and it was just this impromptu thing that these guys always kind of did a low five. That was the thing that all athletes did, and he just went up, and Dusty, Dusty followed him, and then that was the thing, the high five. And then it became the high ten and the low five, and... I love the high five. Now that it's been, geez, it's almost been a decade since that came out. What are some of your takeaways nearly a dec decade later about the impact and what you learned and the surprises along the way with telling that story? Well, one of the, the uh, if not the most powerful interview of that documentary was Billy Bean, and not the A's general manager. Uh, it was uh, the former, did he play for the Dodgers? Yeah. Yeah. Dodgers, Dodgers, Tigers, Padres. Yeah. So he was like doing re realty in Florida at the time. He's now in the front office of Major League Baseball. So there is 
for me, he was a guy that was breaking down in the interview. He, did, he didn't even know Glenn, but he was really talking to us about what it was like to be in the closet and in that clubhouse and not be able to talk about, you know, um, for Billy, Billy, Billy's partner passed away and he had to go play in a game that night because he couldn't talk to anybody about it. So this is a guy that had gone, you know, through the worst possible thing that could happen and really had a lot of empathy and understanding and context about the Glenn Burke story and, and was like shunned from baseball. And now here we are 10 years later and, the league has taken huge, huge strides forward. Um, not that there isn't huge strides to go because we still don't have any openly gay players in any major league sport, male, let me be very, that's a, there is a distinction there, um, that I know of right at this moment. There was one named David Denson, 15th round pick by the Brewers. He came out in 2015, played minor league ball, mm. retired a couple of years ago. He insisted it had nothing to do with his sexuality. He came out, didn't seem like there was any, at least major problems with his teammates. And he just realized it's tough to reach the major leagues yeah. and decided to retire and move on to other things. So there was one openly gay in the minor leagues. Again, he's out of baseball now. Um, final thought on this documentary. The night of the premiere... What are your emotions after that much work and, and time? What are the emotions when it's premiered? And here we go. Yeah, man. That was so we, we were again fortunate that, you know, NBC Sports, Ted Griggs put a lot behind this nationally. Um, and then through this premiere at the Castro Theater, which is an iconic place in San Francisco. Um, and it's like, we sold out. It was amazing. So for me, it was overwhelming. I, my, you know, my, my oldest son, so, uh, had just been born. He was, you know, like a couple months old. So he was there and I was, I was overwhelmed by, you know, I, it feels very selfish to say that there's progress made because, you know, as a heterosexual man, this isn't, you know, this doesn't affect, impact me like it does someone else. So I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back for doing it. But the fact that we were able as this big corporation to do it, to sell out the theater and have support from all sorts of communities, but certainly the gay community in the Castro came out in full force. And so that night, man, I was just proud. I was just like, man, this is great. Can we just, you know, even if it's like a teeny little centimeter forward, like this is a great centimeter forward that we're doing this and let's keep it going. Let's keep facilitating this conversation. You know, I always say like elevate the conversation. The fact that we had, you know, that the morning of that premiere was got to go on a rate on, on KMBR and talk about the subject matter. I'd never heard. I listened to KMBR my whole life. No one ever like the word gay is not, you don't talk, you don't say that on a sports talk radio. And we had conversations about it. Like have have these conversations are a little uncomfortable. And at the end of it, you know, I remember doing that conversation like, look, Nobody died. We had that conversation, and we're, we're all a little bit better for it. It's all good. We just get a little knowledge. No one burned to the ground because we said the word gay. This is great. So, yeah, man, it was, it was, that was a, a really enjoyable night. And uh, I, I, so I would tell one quick side story. I had a, I did a, it is a, I'm a civil rights nerd. Um, the gay rights movement is something that hits me hard. And it was about, it was right for this project. I had a friend ask me, I was working on the No on 8 campaign, which was the, you know, this, this political movement to essentially try to stop any progress in the gay marriage area. So one woman, a friend of mine is like, why do you care so much? She's like, why, like, I don't, why do you, you're not gay. You, you know, she's like, as far as I know, none of your like immediate family members are. Um, and I do have some family members that are actually um, homosexual. But I, I, I brought her to the premiere. And 
Uh, she sat next to me and I was like, this is my answer to that question. Watch this. And at the end of it, I hope you'll get it. And she's like, I get why this bothers you. I get why this matters to you. So that was cool. So let me transition from why does that topic matter to you to why did the topic of tomboy matter mm -hmm. to you? You have two sons, yep. not two girls. And why did this topic become something that you wanted to explore next? You know, the big picture um, of inequality, it's cliche, but, you know, if, if, there, if inequality exists and none of us are equal, right? So as a, um, someone who benefits extraordinarily from white male privilege, as since the day I was born, um, I, yeah, look, I can flip it. I can say I can be selfish about this. That white privilege erodes the souls of those of us that benefit from it. I'm not saying woe is me. But, you know, the inequality that exists on this planet is not good. It does not make better men. We actually, I would say, it devolves us, um, and it bugs me to no end, um, and it bugs me to just see anybody. It's just like a, it's a equality is such a simple, simple idea and not simple to uh, to put into practice. So, you know, I've I've told you the story. Um, you know, the my son's first soccer practice when he was three, perhaps. Um, you know, boys and girls running around the park, and this one girl comes running off the field, and. She's crying because that's what three-year-olds do at their first soccer practice. My four-year-old just did it last week, his first soccer practice. But, you know, coming off the field crying and, and her mom, like, like, whisked her away and said, I guess sports aren't for her. And my son came crying off the – and there was multiple boys, multiple kids came crying off the field. And what we naturally do with boys is pat them on the butt and tell them to get back out there. And the girls – and I was horrified. I was like, this poor girl, like – is going to miss out on so many of the pods. Who cares if she was going to be good at it? It has nothing to do with it. To miss out on those experiences of team building and fitness and health um, because, you know, quote-unquote girls, they're just not getting the same shot. Um, and talking to colleagues of ours, right, it's still a gross imbalance uh, of male and female, but there are some amazing, extraordinary women in our industry. And talking to them about what they face on a day-to-day -day basis, what they face growing up, um, was really eye-opening. Again, from a storytelling perspective, I was like, what? You know, this happened to you? Like, you, you had to deal with this as a kid, and you had to deal with not people telling you you weren't girl enough because you like sports, because you were a great athlete, because you were a great basketball player, like you struggled in high school because the other girls didn't like you and the other boys, and the boys didn't like you either because they were intimidated by you because you could beat them. This is, you know, a friend of mine, Sarah Kustak, who's in the, in the film and who's the, who is now the Nets analyst, the first full-time NBA analyst uh, for the Yes Network out in New York. And she was like, yeah, man, it was it's a struggle. Like, neither the girl, I didn't associate with the girls or the boys. That was a challenge. I'm like, this, man, we got to start talking about this. Just talk, just talk about this. I was trying to create a platform on Tomboy because we are a, a great network that I'm very proud to work for, but we, you know, you turn on the TV, you see men playing sports. And I want my boys, and I want my nieces, and I want everyone to be able to look up on the TV and see people that look like them playing sports, because that's inspiring in many levels. Here's my next question. This is about females. Almost, I think every voice that was on there was female, but yet the guy who's spearheading it is a male. How weird was that? It was. And, um, you know, it was... A lot of the work I'm doing on these on these type of things is because I've got the keys to the car so I can drive. And unfortunately, no, none of the women have the keys. None of uh, there are you know in my in my little small world there are no gay producers that have the keys to the car to drive. So I'm trying to get in and drive this car somewhere so we can get somewhere where 
other people from more diverse you know, backgrounds can tell stories because diverse storytelling is so much more compelling. Again, I can just get back to the fan and the viewer in me. And it's like, I want to hear from different people. So I was very um, vigilant about only having women in this documentary. I actually had to fight a, a particular executive who, I, I got this buddy and he's got a really good perspective on him. I'm like, I don't want to hear from a single male in this. Zero. And, and thankfully, they, you know, my, this person uh, relented. Um, but I was also, um, the goal, which I have not accomplished yet, was to create a platform for female storytellers at our network. And that hasn't happened yet. And it's very frustrating. And I got asked by a female, no less, in, at, at headquarters. Oh, Sean, what are, you, what are your plans for Tomboy 2? And I was like, you are not listening to me. <laughs> it's am, you. You I should be doing Tomboy 2. It. Yeah. I mean, she was a financial person. I'm like, I'm not producing it. You know, she was all excited because we got a big sponsor on it. I'm like, listen, look at this. Sponsors want to align with 51% of the population that we've completely ignored in the sports industry. Completely ignored. It's like, there's money to be made here. But you know what? The women also want to hear, not just from women, they would like to hear from some women. And ideally, it would be nice if half the storytellers were women. That would be awesome to give those perspectives. And uh, so I said, no, I'm not producing Tomboy 2. I'm try- I, I, we, I, show- I, I showed you here that we have this opportunity and that we made they, the, the network made money on it. We don't make money on anything except live sports. We made money on Tomboy. How, how long ago did that come out? Three years ago? No, Tomboy was just over a year ago. Just over a year ago. Yeah. But this was still before hashtag Me Too. This is before Harvey Weinstein. It was. It's before the gymnastics scandal. Absolutely. Um, how did telling the story of Tomboy intersect with what's going on in society the last 12 months? Without question. Well, I mean, a, part of the timing on Tomboy and why I was able to sell it was actually the election. So, you know, Hillary was running. I was actually hoping this was going to coincide with what, you know, what a lot of people um, were, were projecting to be the first female president. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, but then on, after that, obviously, this, the Me Too movement exploded. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of the, again, the, the, the film was supposed to be a, a, a foundation piece to facilitate conversations, which it did. Again, it was great to facilitate. Um, we produced it here in the Bay Area. It was shown nationally, and each region was able to produce content. So this stuff was coming out. So talk shows and radio and stuff and podcasts that were being done around Tomboy were able to touch base on some of these subject matters because it did touch, you know, the whole Me Too movement is is in the sports world, without question. And the, the, the horrors of the gymnastic issue, um, it was there. So at that point, uh, I wasn't trying to deflect or to... But I'd, I'd done my, my piece, and I was kind of just left it out there to go with it. And I was happy that there was, uh, again, at least the sports discussion had been started on a network because of the, the, the Tomboy Project. I feel like, again, I could do an hour with you on all of these different projects that you've worked on. But in the, uh, in the space of, of time, since you have to do your real job in <laughs> about a half hour, and I do want to make sure that we touch on the Dwight Clark Project. Um, this began with longtime 49ers reporter Matt Mayoko. Yes. Explain how Matt got into this and then how this ended up in your lap. Uh, Matt, who I did not know except for seeing him in the press box. I do. I've worked on Niners. I've covered the Niners for a number of years as well in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Matt, had, Matt was uh, legitimately friends with Dwight Clark, a uh, unique uh, unique situation. He met his wife through Dwight Clark. Yeah. Inadvertently. Right. Yeah. It was like they were at a, she wanted to sit at the same table as Dwight. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a cool story actually. Um, but yeah, like Dwight was one of those guys that, um, you know, you and I have dealt with a lot of athletes over the years and 
you know, some are friendlier than others. And, and when you cover a team long enough, sometimes you do, you know, we, I think we, you and I both like to have a little separation of church and state. I, I try to keep my, my distance from athletes that we're covering. But inevitably, when you work with a team, like I've worked with the Sharks for this long, I'm, I have relationships with these, some of these guys. Well, Matt built a relationship with Dwight through his playing career and eventually more so through his GM time. And uh, after Dwight got diagnosed with ALS, he um, and Matt were recording a, a podcast and talking about various subjects. But one of them was um, Dwight told this great story, just like, hey, man, you know, like everywhere I go, people want to talk about the catch. And they want to tell me, he's like, I've had a half a million people tell me they were in the stands that day. And he's like, and he said, I love these stories. And he's like, yeah, I should write a book. He should, should turn it into a book. And Matt said, well, man, we should, hey, fans out there listening to this and, and the Niners podcast there on, is, has got a great following, send in your letters. And it, and it spread through social media and people, letters came pouring in. The stories were amazing. So he came back to the powers of being NBC. He said, hey, what should we do with this? He's like, I don't think we should do a book. We should do a, like a short form documentary. And they stuck him with me because, you know, that's I, these, I do these type things. Like, go talk to this Sean guy. We, so he comes to me, and he's this writer guy. And he's sitting at the, the – literally sitting at the photocopy machine. I'm like, who still uses a, a, a photocopier, <laughs> like a writer, right? He's sitting there copying each letter. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, i got to make copies of all these things. And I'm like, all right. And he told me the thing, and I was like, I don't really know how we can do this, but um, I'm happy to help, you know. And I'm – I, again uh, – I look at it from a certain lens, which interestingly, early on in the process, I said, Hey, like, can we use this as a vehicle to talk about, um, health with football players? Uh, right. And he was like, Oh, yeah, I don't understand. He's like, I don't know if we want to touch that. And I said, look, man, I'm not trying to like start, a, start a fight here. Um, but I think there's, by telling the story, there's an undercurrent to, to at least have the discussion about where, um, head injuries play into these type of diseases. Uh, and I'm, I don't know the term and I should, I was about to say neuro, this is, this is beyond me as a TV guy, neurodegenerative diseases like ALS, which uh, I believe um, NFL players uh, are diagnosed with ALS at three times the rate of the general population. I mean, that's, that's, that's math, something that we should be looking at. Um, so anyway, that's how it came to me. We looked at it. Um, and Whose yeah. idea? How did, so you have Ronnie Lott and Joe Montana. You have some of the most famous football players of all time and they are reading these letters from fans yeah some of them are sad some of them are funny some of them are both yeah how did the process go to get these legends to read these letters yeah i mean again i, I credit matt with the relationships and what you and i both try to do and what we do we try to build relationships trust um you know it's like any job any of us do when you earn trust over a number of years with relationships uh that does pay you know pay itself off later so matt's Matt has a lot of trust within the Niners organization um, with, uh, you know, to the level of Mr. DeBartolo, Mr. D. And so when we, and with Dwight, most importantly. So Dwight had essentially invited Matt out to read the letters to him, uh, which, which ended up being about a month before he passed. And Ronnie was going to go out there, uh, Ronnie Lott and um, Keena Turner and, and, and a number of other guys. We, and so... You know, Matt told me about this is going to happen. I'm like, hey, do we film this? You know, how do we? This is a really dicey situation. And ultimately, Matt was like, yeah, we can't take cameras to this. No, this is for Dwight. And I was like, yeah, great. Um, some photos were taken, um, which ended up being a big part of the documentary. Brad Mangin. Brad Mangin. Really, really good. Yeah, Brad is awesome and was a huge help on this project. Um, so they went and when he came back, he's like, yeah, I got a couple photos. And I, we talked and I said, well, look, you know, I think. 
this would be compelling if we got what we ended up we calling the big four. Um, Kina, Joe, who wasn't there when they read the letters, but, you know, Joe is the guy that you need. Mr. D uh, and Ronnie. I was like, if they read the letters, mix in with a couple of the fans, I think this could be really compelling. And they were all, all those guys were, like, completely on board. Uh, time was short. The Niners wanted to, the Niners wanted to uh, premiere this on uh, 8-7, on, you know, 87 is number. And so we had this whole, that was, I've never worked on a project of that depth and magnitude that quickly. Um, but those guys were all on board and, and we went with it. So when you're recording an interview at a hockey arena or at a baseball stadium, there's not a whole lot that you can do in terms of like the background, but in something like this, explain what you're looking for, light, lighting, background, the mood that you're trying to establish, what things are you see are you eyeing to try to make this have the right soul? Yeah. Yeah, man. There's definitely, um, it is unique because I do like to um, shoot my own stuff when it comes to this, these type of interviews. I am not uh, a great videographer, um, but I do have like visions in my head, <laughs> voices and visions in my head. But I do have like a vision, and a, but it's more of a feel, right? Like there's like with this piece, I'm like, there's a feel, like there's a soul, like it's, it needs to be, I don't want, you don't want it to be somber, but you want, you want like, I really want the viewer to be able to like, get sucked into the letter, right? So I don't want a distracting shot. I don't want a bunch of movement. Um, and I want, I want you to be sitting, feel like you're sitting next to Joe Montana. Like you're sitting on a couch next to each other and he's reading you the letter. That's, that's kind of the feel I was going for. So Kina's, Kina was kind enough to invite her to his house. I'm like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to sit on your couch. Let's sit on your couch. We lit it up, you know, so, kind of softer lighting, nothing too bright. And it was just like, I wanted it to feel, you know, we didn't want to, I, you know, some shots you want like pristine, I was like, no, I want your house looking like it looks. Like, I want, it, I want the viewer to feel like they're sitting on the couch with you. Uh, Joe Montana, we were fortunate enough, I got a connection. Uh, not that they would have, I didn't need a connection. Original Joe's in San Francisco. You know, I called my buddy who works there. He runs the bar there. Great guy. And I uh, said, hey, by the way, this, I got a quick side. Literally, we were struggling, not because they said they wouldn't do it, but just was scheduled with Joe Montana and Mr. D. And we're getting down to it. Monday morning, Mayoko texts me. Joe wants to do the interview tomorrow. I'm like, oh, okay. And Mr. D wants to do it Thursday in Whitefish, Montana. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, all right. So I'm, it's 6.30 in the morning. I'm like, oh, where are we going to do this? And I go, okay. So I call my buddy. I text my buddy at Original Joe. I say, can I bring Joe Montana in? He goes, oh, actually, no. I didn't say Joe Montana. Hey, is your, they have this really cool, I call it the mafia room. This mafia room in the back. Any chance this is available tomorrow afternoon? He goes, yeah, I can check. Why? I go, uh, I was going to bring Joe Montana in for an interview. He's like, whoever's using it, we're kicking him out. So, and I guess he told me that one of the bartenders after it was, it was airing in the restaurant and he's pouring drinks and he looks up and he's, and it's the, the documentary's on. He goes, is that Joe Montana in our room? And I go, he goes, yeah. He's, you didn't tell me Joe Montana was coming in. <laughs> he was, boy, the guy was pissed. He's like, I work here. I would have worked a free shift for that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the feel like in the, you know, all the things, Mr. D again, bring us out to his ranch and, 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 and visually trying to create that hanging out in his ranch because he's got this cool room, which is like the bar where, where Dwight and all those guys like to hang out. So you want the viewer to be able to feel like they are hanging out. Just listening to these letters. The pictures and I haven't seen it in a couple of months now, but there's like the, the clothespins and the, yep. the clothes hanger. Where did that vision, what are you trying to establish with that? Similar on a feel. So um, not to pull the curtain back too far, but like those, those are actually, 
I've always really loved historically, like sh- like shooting like shooting those pictures in a real environment. So like for the Glenn Burke documentary, we took I took a bunch of photos of his and I put them like I took them on I I went out to this like softball field at night in the fog in San Francisco with the street lights behind it and I clipped them to the fence and I used this particular camera that has a really like delicate lens and it gave this gritty feel of pictures. Well, you know, the technology is advanced and the time, the timing was really the issue. Um, you know, these are, it was an after effects. This was, this was computer generated where I took digital pictures. We're able to put those in. Those frames aren't real. That's all digital. Okay. But I, but you, you have to go out and find that project because we didn't have time to design anything. And so again, like there are, you know, there are sites where you can buy this type of stuff. I went through, you know, a thousand and it's like, finally I found one. And I can be honest with you that, that one wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it was pretty close. It was actually, if I really nitpicked it, it was like, it was too clean, um, a little too, for lack of a word, it was like a little too sunny, but I still, I, I thought it worked. I thought it worked. I loved it. This, which is why I brought it up. Thanks. Um, in order to get this 30 minutes without commercial interruption. Yes. Explain that process. <laughs> me wheeling and dealing uh moderate shenanigans you know i've i've challenged our network to think outside of the time constraints of television for a long time and it's something we it's just you know we all know that like media is consumed not in half hour hour time frames on television anymore we consume media in so many different ways in so many different time frames so uh in this particular case i wanted to make and i was very firm like i'm going to do this and i and even matt was like well how long is it be but i don't know how long it's going to be and that's irrelevant it might be four minutes it might be an hour we got to gather this stuff in i got you know we're going to sit and have joe montana and mr d and ronnie and um kina read these letters and then i'll let me throw it on the cooking pot and i'll tell you how much we got or what we have it turned out that it, it was like it it was pure luck that it was kind of in. I really felt it worked at the kind of the half hour time range. Um, Matt at one point was like, man, I think we have more. We go to hour. And I was like, it, you know, try, you know, I, I didn't pull rank on this. I said, look, man, I don't, and he's, he can speak from a writing standpoint. There's time like you could write twice as much. It's better at this at the 27 minute mark. You know, the original, the, actually the version we premiered was about a half an hour long. And what we premiered for some of the 49ers uh, players and, um, and their brass. And, but when, when I went to, um, the process was literally like, there's a department at NBC that they're responsible for this type of stuff. Hey, we're going to have this half hour window. I said, cool. How many commercial spots have to get in? I was like, Oh man, you know, I, I think I can cut all the way down three minutes. So if you want like three, one minute breaks, you know, in the show, cause that's what they think. They're like, you have segment one commercial breaks. And when I was like, cool, three minutes, great. Stick it at the end. <laughs> and he's like, what? I said, like, yeah, take the three minutes. So run 27 minutes of the film and then put three minutes at the end. Can we do that? And he's like, I don't care. We'll see if anyone in the sales department minds. Well, so apparently it went to the sales department and they actually were like, fine. Cause they don't actually make money on, on commer- like those, like this isn't the Super Bowl, right? But they did go ahead and, um, secured a sponsor, which I was initially not cool with, but I, first of all, let me also say, I have no say in, <laughs> and I am very thankful to have a job that I get paid and sponsors do pay for that. So thank you sponsors. Um, but it was Toyota who is really tightly aligned with the 49ers. Um, and I'm super thankful that Toyota threw some money at it. And that's great. You mentioned, uh, the premiere for the 49ers players and the yeah. front office explain that night or day. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a night. I was eight, seven and it's the Niners would like to do something every year on, um, August 7th, which is cool to commemorate, uh, to commemorate Dwight and the catch and the great moment that was. And so they held a, a really nice private event that night 
to honor Dwight. It was kind of the his funeral was about a week before. This was kind of the first uh, opportunity for the Niners to hold a kind of a, a small celebration, and, and it definitely a celebration. This was not a this was it wasn't a party, but it was somewhere in between. It was you know they literally had a bar with beer and margaritas because that's what Dwight liked, <laughs> and uh, you know Jerry Rice was there, a couple of the, several other obviously that wasn't a teammate of his, but several of his teammates were there. And um, we, you know, they've really. If you haven't had a chance, go check out the 49ers Museum. They got this great theater. We premiered the film in there, um, and it, it was just a nice opportunity for some people to get together. You know, toast toast a margarita to Dwight, watch the piece, um, and that was really powerful for me um, because of the people that were in that room. Um, it's certainly, his teammates that were in that room, and. Um, and you know, like Brad Mangin was there, and to get the kind of get the nod, Kirk Reynolds, um, to get the like the, this works, this is good, this is what Dwight. Actually, the thing I wanted to hear was this is what Dwight was looking for, because inevitably I've never worked on a piece like this where Dwight, Dwight was the producer. It was this was his idea. It was his idea to do this, and when I was producing it, there was oftentimes moments where I wanted to put kind of like some some gushy stuff about Dwight and how great of a guy he was and I literally heard Dwight cursing at me from the heavens he's like this is not what it's supposed to be it's supposed to be stories about what people were doing during the catch I was like got it got it man so that was awesome and uh and that day you know the people that were his friends there that day were like that's what Dwight wanted it's like that's all I need to hear if nobody likes it when they watch it except for that if Dwight wanted this I'm good all right, what I want is a few other questions answered on a few slightly different topics because I'm running out of time. You and your brother once got into a real boxing ring with real boxing gloves and real boxing headwear, and you guys had a boxing match. <laughs> yes. Why? Yes, we did. <laughs> God, it's mir- miraculous. Uh, Wait, actually, before you say why, between you, your brother, your mom, your dad, girlfriends, friends, wives, who was most excited about this boxing match? All of my and, and my brother's buddies that we grew up with, we're, we're pretty close in age, just two years apart. So we have a lot of friends that, you know, that have known us since birth. And that's how it came to, to be is once the idea came up, once the buddies found out about it, literally they all offered any, they're like, whatever money this costs to make this happen, we're paying. We'll pay. We'll pay to watch this. We'll pay to watch you two idiots punch each other in the face. Who was most nervous about this boxing match? Mom. Mom walked in to the event Took one look at the ring. She intended to watch it. Turned around, walked out, went to the bar across the street. <laughs> my dad watched in disgust. It was not a proud moment for my parents. Did it have the intended impact that it was supposed to have? We raised, uh, which you know may sound like not a lot of money to people, but at the time, certainly this was, uh, it was a while ago. None of our friends or us were making a lot of money. We raised two thousand dollars for the Omega Boys Club in San Francisco, and that was and entertained our friends. And it was for my brother's thirtieth birthday. Everyone had a great time. To jump to the uh, kind of the end of the story is I won the fight. By the way, we had judges Paul Gutierrez, who you and I both yes. know, who is a bo- he knows what he's doing when it comes to boxing. He scored the fight along with a couple other guys. I won the fight, but I came out of it with a shiner. And I had to go the next day to the, the, the gym. I'd go get a morning workout, and I walked up to the front desk, and Rebecca, Rebecca, who's the front desk woman, just looked at me and said, what the hell happened to you? And I just looked at her and said, my brother punched me in the face, and I walked right past her. And my brother, like, that was it. That was my brother's birthday present. That, that, there's, that he got, I had to walk around with a shiner the next day. If someone is listening to this and they think, yeah, this kind of sounds like me and my brother, 
Maybe we should do this. Would you recommend that brothers get into a boxing ring and punch each other's lights out for charity? Uh, hey, you know what? I'm all for. I'm all for. If it's going to raise some, if you if you got some people that are willing to pay for it in charity, I will say this: you you have new respect for the art of fighting. Period. And uh, you know, look, I'm the first guy that is a, a someone that's looking at head safety and stuff like that. There's there's some issues there. But but fighting, grappling, wrestling, boxing, martial arts, it is a extraordinarily taxing sport. I played uh, <laughs> I played college football at a very low level when I say played mainly mainly I watched from the sideline. But if every all the football I played in my life, it paled in comparison to that five rounds I fought that night. Five rounds. We did five two minute rounds, not even three minutes. Three real boxers do three. I have never been more exhausted in my life. In the first two minutes, I was gassed. And I was in shape. I was in great shape. So much respect. Speaking of your low-level football playing days, what is your favorite <laughs> special <Nice>. teams moment? <laughs> Thank you. Favorite special teams moment? From huh. your playing career. Uh, from my playing career? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a story that doesn't actually involve me. Because I was, I was on the sideline. Which again, this seems to be a recurring theme, um, but I but I usually was on the special teams. But I think it was a kickoff, and I was at Chico State, the the mighty Wildcats, and we were playing Humboldt State, and their star running back was Percy McGee. Percy McGee uh, actually was also from the East Bay area. He went to Pittsburgh. He was he was at the time quite the legend. So he's starting running back. Our mascot, who may, may or may not have been drunk. Somehow walked onto the Humboldt State sideline, stole the helmet of Percy McGee. <laughs> Percy McGee, so, he, so the mascots on our sideline now, like like holding this bright green and yellow helmet up in the air. Percy sees him on the sideline, sprints across. This is Division <laughs> Two football, ladies and gentlemen. Sprints across the field and decks just crushes our mascot. Takes his helmet, puts it on, trots onto the field. Favorite moment right there. <laughs> All right, next topic. You always wear a suit and tie for hockey games, even yep. though you're in the truck. You're not on the air. Correct. You are behind the scenes. Why do you wear a suit and tie? Yeah, there's the old. There are some. There are many levels. Hockey is an old school uh, sport. Uh, we also travel. We're fortunate enough to travel with the team. Uh, the players themselves on game days when we fly uh, travel in suit and tie. I um, of the belief of uh, that you. It's, you know the old adage of represent. You know I am representing myself. My family, this team, the San Jose Sharks, the league, the National Hockey League, and my employer, NBC. It's like, you know what? I'm, if I'm going to be dealing with general managers and uh, PR staff, I'm looking at some of our PR staff here walking into the ball right now who are also in suit and tie, I'm going to meet them on their level. And you know me, I'm a, I'm a T-shirt, shorts, and flip-flop guy one day, and I'm riding my skateboard down the street. And you know, I dropped my kids off at school literally on alternate days this week in a suit and tie one day and flip-flops and T-shirt shorts and my flat bill hat, and I ride my skateboard as I tear off. And people just shake their head like, what is that guy's problem? <laughs> who, who? I mean, in San Francisco, they just think I'm mentally deranged, which is not far from the truth. You were on special teams and once fought your brother. All right, um, last question. This is kind of a nerdy play-by-play question. I admit I don't watch a lot of hockey. Um, when I do watch hockey on TV, I'm, I'm fascinated by what my perception is. And please tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds like TV play-by-play announcers in hockey call the game very similar to the way that a radio play-by-play announcer would call the game. Whereas in the sports that I watch, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, even soccer, there seems to be a more, a wider difference in letting it breathe, 
caption the the video that you're seeing versus paint the pictures on radio. Am I am I wrong or what am I missing about this? No, you're not wrong. But I've never thought about that before, Sush. And that is a great perceptive, um, you know, my, little mic drop right there by you. Like interesting. It, and now that I think about it, it is a sport that is so quick. It is tough to follow on TV. We all know that is my challenge as a producer. We could do a whole other podcast on that. Um, but I, I think the announcer's responsibility on translating the game on TV is to verbally give a little bit more, to let you know it is tough to track what players are which. And, and I think you and I both can ap- appreciate there's also a beautiful cadence to it. So, you know, it, to someone that does it well. So it adds to a broadcast to have a great voice that is going to give you a nice cadence. That it's not it's not a it's not a baseball slower cadence. It's a hockey. It's a quicker cadence, right? And I love that. It can really add to a broadcast when done well. Uh, and I think you know we're very fortunate here to have one of the best in the business, Randy Hahn. And he does a great job with it. Yeah, it wasn't meant as a, as a criticism. I hope it didn't come across. No, that not way. at all. It was just more just an observation because no, I'm constantly thinking of of how how's you know. When less is more, and when more is more, absolutely. And, and, and I just always found it interesting. That's awesome. I'm actually really going to pay a little bit more attention to that this year. All right, final question. Yep. Since again, a lot of my audiences uh, they're like nerdy play-by-play announcers. Um, what's a piece of advice to play-by-play announcers that you can give that does not get given often enough? Oof. That. Whether it's getting started, whether it's the actual broadcast, whether it's the preparation, whether it's how you handle yourself off the air on airplanes, eating lunch, picking up tabs? Yeah, you know what? I would say, um, this may be self-serving here, but get to know the technical aspect of your show and the people that are working on it. And you will be surprised at how much of a better feel you have for um, uh, the actual broadcast and how you can actually um, amplify your own voice. I'm I'm actually talking more... um, philosophically there it's I, i've encouraged my guys here on the sharks broadcast to stop by the tv truck for instance and really understand what's going on and it's made the broadcast better for them they understand they're more comfortable they get when there are technical difficulties it doesn't throw them off as much because they know how the how and what is going on here and how to help in their regard and again not have them get knocked off you know be thrown off when there's a buzz in their ear or whatever it may be all right well we built this podcast on rock and roll yes we're going so, to bring it back full circle. So let's see if we can get to a traffic report, and then we'll wrap it up. You want to do the traffic report, yeah, the or you tra- want me to do it? The traffic report, I'm going to start it off, is it's 2.54 local time here in the Bay Area, and if you, unless you get your, your sorry butt on the road in the next 10 minutes, you're going to be sitting in traffic for the next three hours. And I don't want to do that, and I'm getting out of San Jose, so thanks so much for your time, my friend. You, my friend, are one of the best in the biz. It is always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for having me. This is Life Around the Seams. 